Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to another special bonus episode of the Paul Ryder Tapes. This week, it's Paul's great friend, builder, star of ITV's 60 Minute Makeover, an all-round great guy, Jason Godwin. I'm a good friend of Paul's, I'd like to think so, since 1998, and yourself, and the rest of your family. So yeah, it's a a real privilege and a kind of honour actually, because you, when Paul sadly passed away last July, you'd asked me to speak at his funeral and I kicked myself now, but I was so terrified about speaking about Paul and breaking down and in front of the royalty of Manchester's music scene that I, I bottled it really. And so to get to speak about Paul now, a few months on with you is a real, real privilege and an honour. You just have to be on, like, just be real. It's not about, you know. Well, I don't think I could be anything else because that yeah. that was the foundation of me and Paul's relationship. It was one that yeah. was just very, I got to know Paul's demons before I got to know Paul's angels, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So take me back to the very, very beginning. Okay. Well, mutual friend of ours, Tom. Yeah, um, he'd been to an NA meeting up in Manchester and he said to me, and he was a good friend of mine. He said to me, he said, never believe who I met the other day. He said, in this meeting in Manchester, the lad from the Happy Mondays, Paul Ryder. And I was like, oh, yeah, he goes, yeah, and he's going to come down and stay with me. And I said, oh, wow, that's that's fucking amazing. Because the Mondays for us, being part of that, like... I'm going to take you back to 1988 and we was all into acid house music and mad parties and everything where I went to school and they were very much into rock bands. So like being into house music and acid parties and going to raves wasn't a cool thing, but the Mondays come along 
and they were a guitar band and they made playing the guitar cool again. It was all right to listen. They had that groove and they had that funk. So I was like, wow, Paul out of the Mondays, you know. And so Paul came down to stay with Tom, I think. This was around about 1998, I want to say. Yeah, around about 1998. And he come to a meeting in Hartford where I, I used to go as well. And I always remember it because Tom and Paul were sitting on the other side of the room. For the whole of this meeting, Paul was staring at me. And I was thinking, what's, what's wrong with me? What, what is it? And after the meeting, we went and had a coffee, me, Tom and Paul. And he, he said to me, he said, oh, I like your trainers. He goes, I was clocking them in the meeting, your trainers. <laughs> I was like, it's a funny thing. I was like into your trainers as well. And he took my number. And like at the time... I wasn't probably like most people in those meetings, Paul as well. I was really, really struggling in my life. I was looking, I was looking for some answers and I was looking for some help. And the fact that the guy from the Happy Mondays had wanted to take my phone number just just blew me away. And he called me the next day. And I'll never forget it, Ange, because I saw his name come up on the phone and I was like, no way, he's calling me. What does he want? And I answered. And we're chatting away and he's like, oh, it was good to see you last night and that. And he said, uh, do you want to swap them trainers you got on for my trainers? Really? I didn't know. And that's how it started. And we went on for years after that, just swapping clothes because we were around about the same sort of height and size and same foot size as well. So yeah, we that that that's kind of the first memories I have of meeting Paul were, were at a meeting. And and to be honest, the 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 spotlight on the Mondays had long since gone out. And Paul was he was not in a good place. I was not in a good place. So really, we didn't have that distraction of him being a rock star because he was he was just Paul when he was in recovery. Had me and him already got together? You and him were together because the the next thing I kind of remember is coming down to St Anne's Road in Islington. St Paul's Road. St Paul's Road, sorry. Yeah. In Islington, where I remember knocking on the door, Tom knocking on the door, because we was going to go out with Paul for a, to a meeting. Yeah. And Paul opened the door and you just walked out of the toilet. I'd never met you before. And you had a, you just literally found out that you was pregnant with Sonny. Yeah. So we turned up at the most inappropriate of moments because <laughs> it was clearly a special moment for you two. And we ended up going to a meeting and stuff, but that that's the first time I remember meeting you both. Uh, yeah. Meeting you anyway, Ange. I remember, you know, when- I, rem- I remember you and Tom being there in the house when I just found out I was pregnant, and you had long hair at the time, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really, I really. That. Yeah. And then some somewhere around about that time, I remember him we were supposed to go to a meeting and he said, Oh, I'm gonna call round and see my mate see Rob. Yeah. And I just thought it was his mate Rob. So we went up to Notting Hill, me and Tom and Paul, and he knocked on the door and it was Robbie Williams he was going to see, right? And I found myself in Robbie Williams' house with Paul and Tom. And before I knew it, he was inviting us to Wembley to see 
him play at Wembley with Paul and Paul was going, no, I think I'm going to do a meeting. I was like, no, let's go to Wembley and watch Robbie Williams. Don't even like take that or, but uh, (laughs) I thought this is a chance. did you go? Did you go? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We went. And I had this surreal moment of being in the toilet at Robbie Williams's house and phoning Dawn, my then partner. And I was surrounded by all these kind of, music awards and everything just thinking how has this happened that I'm with I'm with not only one of my just I really did revere the Mondays as a band back in their early days so to be with Paul and then suddenly with this guy who's just left take that and he was going out on his own and he was showing us videos of his new single and stuff it was just it was just a mad time and it was just yeah Yeah. crazy crazy Brilliant. Well, I least expected. Yeah. So what do you think it was that bound you to put, like, what, what do you think was responsible for your friendship being as strong as it was? I think it was what I identified in Paul was that kind of social awkwardness, that, that kind of vulnerability, just feeling very fragile and very delicate, and an imposter syndrome almost low self-esteem all that kind of stuff we shared it as I got to know him and that I realized he was just as fragile as I was and I think that's what drew us together we were delicate souls Mm. and at the time you were working as a builder but you're also converting your own house weren't you that's Tell me about that. That's right. Yeah. So we was converting an old chapel into a new house. And I think I met you a few times and you'd said to me, I want to come down and do a showreel because I think you should be on TV. And what you you may or may not realise is you're, you're responsible for my career now, really, of what I do How? now. How? I, I don't understand. That showreel that you shot that at the house, that didn't do anything for two years and then all of a sudden one day I got a phone call from ITV saying oh we've seen this show reel and I don't know how this happened Ange yeah. you must because you did the show reel but she said we've seen a show reel of you and we'd like you to come and audition for a TV program called Jade Salon which do you remember Jade Goody the, yeah, the yeah. Mm-hmm. TV girl that was on I think was it Big Brother she was on yeah yeah, yeah. And they wanted me to be the builder that converted the salon. And I went down to do a screen test on the back of that showreel that you did at the chapel. Mm. And they said, I remember doing the screen test. And then a few weeks later, they said, oh, we'd already chosen the guy that we wanted to do this. And it wasn't you, but you came down and made an impact and we want to go with you. And from that, I went on to work in TV for six or seven years, 60 minute makeover, all of which Paul appeared on as well. (laughs) I always remember he was in the back of the van, covered up with a load of tools and everything, and they played the Happy Mondays, and he came out with his tool belt on and was trying to help us do up this place on daytime TV. It was surreal. You got him the gig on 60 Minute Makeover then to do... I'm the gig on 60 Minute Makeover, and at the time he wasn't doing he wasn't doing anything. He was just struggling to stay clean and sober, really. Yeah. Uh, uh, there was no work for Paul or anything. And then I think that's about the time that I started coming up to Worsley and meeting you guys and mm. 
the open door policy of your house where you just let all the waifs and strays in it seems (laughs) and so I'd be traveling up to Manchester I always remember getting to yours and Paul would always be in bed shut himself away and then he'd come down late at night and me and him would sit up to the early hours of the morning watching the most bizarre cop shows and detective series and anything murder mystery that's what and that's really started to bond it was the late night discussions and when you're trying to get clean and sober there's a a depth and an honesty to the conversation that doesn't exist in day-to-day conversations with people I couldn't believe he was the guy from the Mondays the bass player and original member of the Mondays and yet he felt as insecure and disillusioned with everything as I was and that was was crazy and I didn't really look at him because they'd long since split up the Mondays and we never did anything sort of show busy or anything it was meetings coffee shops either at your house or periodically come down to Hertfordshire yeah so there was a time when a dark, very dark time in his life when I think, I can't remember exactly what had happened that made me kick him out, but I think he'd been to rehab and then come back and muse the next day. I think he'd been to Antigua and had come and, like, used straight away and, and that was it for me. And I packed him off down to you. <laughs> I seem to remember you funding a lot of, very expensive rehab programs around the world. Yeah. Nothing being of any success for him. Yeah. And yeah, he ended up coming to stay and live at my mum's house, which that was just insane because yeah. <laughs> he wasn't clean and sober. Tell me about, I mean, I I know what was going on because he'd be caught, he'd call me, oh, I need to send me 15 pounds, send me 15, like he'd want money every time, like, oh. It was one of those awful things that, like, you go to, I go to, went to the meetings for, for my my lot, the Al-Anon lot, and you, you know, told not to enable, but I just felt like if I washed my hands of him, he'd die. Like, it was, it was that bad. And if I, if I really kicked him out and nobody was there to scoop him up, he would die. That was the fear, and I think that's what, that's what the fear is of, of anyone who's got a loved one who's using. Like, yeah, tough love. You're meant to do the tough love. They reach their rock bottom, but they can also die. And I think my fear was that if I did that, he'd die. So I kind of copped out by sending him to you because <laughs> I knew you'd scoop him up. <laughs> well, we tried to, uh, and I was still struggling myself, truth be told, Anne. Yeah, well, we'll get on to that. <laughs> but, yeah. He, he came to stay with mum and I remember going around to mum's house quite a few times and he'd got mum pissed and they were both pissed together and I was thinking, oh, if Ange finds out, this is not going to be good. It was, I don't think, looking back, I don't think it was, well, it was probably a good move for you <laughs> because you needed that little bit of space and everything. But in terms of, I don't think Paul was ready in his recovery at that time. That's when I started to convert the chapel and Paul come would come up and stay with me and Dawn up at the chapel so right. he didn't have any money and he was constantly badgering me for money and everything and I said the only way I'm going to give you money is if you earn it 
So you're going to have to come and work for me. And I'd have him lay in this pack. I remember it because it was freezing cold, pissing down with rain. And he was laying a patio and knocking up the sand and cement for me. Paul wasn't the most kind of athletic of people. So to see him work, he really struggled to kind of do it, but he did it. And the one thing I remember is we bought this Arga, reconditioned Arga. And me and Dawn had gone out one night and we came back and he was cooking burgers on top of the Arga, but not on a pan, just the burgers on top of the Arga. And I had these two burger marks on my Arga till the day we sold that place. So whenever I used to open this Arga, I used to see these two burger marks and I was thinking, Paul, because he just put them straight on top of the Arga, thinking you could just cook on the hot plate. Then the dark times. So, did you feel the brunt of of dealing with a using addict and not knowing what to do? Like, how how much did that affect you? Is it because you were struggling yourself? You said like that must have been quite difficult for you. I think I was in the back of my mind. I had you and the boys kind of thinking that Paul was down staying with us, trying to get himself sorted, and I knew that he was really struggling and would just disappear and use. I remember there was a big jar of those big whiskey bottles with all the pennies in and everything. He'd he'd fucking nick that out of my garage (laughs) and gone and changed up all the money to score with. And I felt hurt at the time, but I understood, obviously. And there was other incidents. Did he admit to doing that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you confront him and say, have you taken my money? Do you know what? I don't know... I probably didn't confront him actually over that one. I was just like, oh, whatever. I let it go. Because I kind of knew Paul wasn't himself right then. It wasn't the real Paul. He's in the grips of his addiction. I'd had enough glimpses or insights to see the real Paul, to know that that wasn't him and that was the addiction kind of at work. So I guess there was forgiveness and tolerance there like there was with you because roll the clock on quite a few years later and you get the clean version of Paul. The thing that kept me going with him was that I genuinely believed, and I think I was right, I genuinely, and I know I was right, I genuinely believed that he had a desire to be clean. Like I I never felt like he'd given up. And as long as he held, had the desire and kept trying, that's what kept me there for right, rightly or wrongly. But I always felt that he was using against his own wishes to do that because he was in the grips of a disease. I think most addicts who arrive at the doors of recovery are in that same dilemma, aren't they? That the, the, the desire to use is there. They just, yeah. they just can't stop using for whatever reason though yeah I believe that too so I I think I was probably forgiving of him for some of the things that happened let's talk about the when I came down for the weekend with the boys and we stayed in was it the Marriott in Hartford yeah I think so and that was terrible that was such a Harry so I remember waking up so that we were in a room with the two boys and we all went to sleep and I woke up in the night and Paul wasn't there. And so I went looking for him. And it must have only been maybe midnight or something. And I found him in the hotel bar holding court with all these people talking about 
being the bass player of the Mondays, absolutely legless drunk. And I, he was like, sit down, sit down. So I sat down with them. I'd left the kids in the room. And then five minutes later, the hotel manager came looking for me because the kids had woken up and they were beside themselves crying because nobody was in the room. And I felt like such a bad mother that I'd abandoned my kids. It was like a real metaphor. I'd abandoned my kids in this hotel room to go and find Paul and sat down in the bar with him. And I felt so bad. That was one, that's one of my worst parenting moments that where I let me caretaking him overtake my responsibilities as a mum and left the kids in the room crying. Well, they weren't crying when I left, but they'd obviously woken up when I'd gone. And then the next day, Paul, and then I still to this day don't know whether it was just for dramatic purposes. But do you remember I called you because he, he basically said he was going to go in the bathroom and hang himself and grabbed a belt and went in the bathroom and locked the door and I was beside myself so I had to get you and Tom to come down I think we showed up and he hadn't obviously hung himself um but he was in a certainly in a in a dark dark place yeah there was lots of times like that wasn't there I remember coming up to Worsley quite a few times and knocking on your door and you was just beside yourself because he'd taken his bass guitars down to the pawn shop to do what he needs to do to get what he needs to get Me and Tom was always amazed about how resilient or codependent maybe. Codependent, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you was around that time and, and Paul. But I got it myself because I felt the same way. It was like he really, really struggled to get clean and sober and I was on the receiving end of some not good stuff back in those days. And um, But I always had it in my heart to forgive him because I knew that yeah. wasn't real Paul. All right, let's let's go to some better time. So you came up to Manchester, and can you remember any memories of being in the house in Manchester, doing up the house? Well, really, really fond memories of of being in Manchester. Not uh, least of all, Paul's dad. I remember one of the first times I come up to Manchester, and you know that little green that was out the front of yours. I remember pulling in there, and I just see this fella sat on a deck chair with a few tins of beer and it was Paul's dad. <laughs> that was the first time I met his dad. But yeah, no, I have, I'm sure there must've been some difficult times, but looking back now as a whole, I, I found that time your house was always so welcoming. It was lovely getting to know you and you and I become friends then because yeah. a lot of the time Paul was just not around. So it'd be me and you speaking to the early hours of the morning mm. And then talking about this illness that we all know so well. And it must be difficult for you not being an addict or an alcoholic, understanding that. And I just, I have fond memories of that time when he came back up to Manchester and then working for you. And then, of course, you moved to France or you bought the house. I bought the place in France. I did think you was both mad at the time. Tell me why. Why did you think we were mad? I mean, it was a beautiful looking house, but I turned up there and just thought, oh, my God, this place is huge. You know, this is going to be worth a few quid. But when we went inside, it didn't look like it had any work done to it since about 1982 when the 
previous oh, owner. Oh, the 70s. <laughs> well, the 70s, yeah. So, so it was, and I, I saw that it was total rewiring, replumbing, and I was thinking, I cannot let them buy this place, yeah. And I was doing everything in my power to put you off of it. What was wrong with it? Oh, well, like I say, the wiring hadn't been touched since the 70s. The plumbing hadn't been touched since the 70s. The decor hadn't been touched since probably the 60s. <laughs> and and it was a huge sprawling pad, wasn't it? The, the one thing I remember was the river and the stuff running with, there's a story there with the river. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and I just thought you, you was taking on way, way more. And you was expecting me to kind of help you renovate this place. And I was thinking, I don't speak French. If I come over, how are we going to do all this? And yeah, it just seemed like way too much. So obviously then we went ahead and bought it. <laughs> so you went ahead and bought it and convinced me to come out there and help you do it up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's when I kind of decamped and moved to France. Best part of a year, I think it was, Ange, because yeah. at the time Dawn was pregnant with Millie, Amelie. My daughter, yeah. And we came out there, and I think we started on the Jeep first, didn't we? Yeah. We converted that, and then we started doing some work in the main house. Do you remember, were you there when he rode the tractor naked? Well, somewhere on a laptop is pictures of Paul in his wellies, stark bollock naked, riding the lawnmower, yeah, I took the pictures and I've got them all. And I often thought I could get a few quid for these pictures, but I've never done anything with them. But I'm going to let you have them for Excellent. sure. We need to see these pictures. Yeah. And then I do remember we was getting well behind with the work and everything because unbeknown to you, I think you thought that I was still clean and sober where I was struggling myself. And whenever you'd go away, Paul would have me up at that little local pub where all the farmers went and we'd be drinking ouzo and god knows what else and i always remember the barmaid saying he's a rock star who is he and i said well you know you too i said he back in england his band are bigger than you too (laughs) so we used to just get free drinks all the time everyone was buying us drinks and everything but we we did get the place finished in the nick of time for the guests because what happened was we'd rented the cottage out and we'd rented one the half of the house that didn't need quite so much work doing we'd taken bookings for the summer and then the idea was that we'd stay in the other half that wasn't renovated but you know what I remember some of my fondest memories of being in France was that's where me and Paul really got close we would be out on the patio at night he'd be listening to the radio and that's where our love of music, soul and funk music. And just, that's where we really kind of got really, really close. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I always used to say to Paul, one day I'm going to watch you at Wembley. Yeah. And you'll be back with your brother and you'd have sorted stuff out. And strangely enough, the last time I saw Paul was at Wembley when he played Wembley Christmas 2021, whatever it was. Right. You know. Yeah. Well, he hadn't really reconciled with Sean. There wasn't a. Oh, I don't think they had, but I, we called it the VAT tour. He was there to pay the bills and all the rest of it. But for me, as a fan of the Mondays and just, the fact that they were back together and he was in his band and he was up there doing what he'd always loved doing. That for me was just such a wonderful thing to see after all the years of isolation. Let's just wind back. So there was the period where the fake Mondays were doing all these gigs and Paul wasn't involved. But then in 2012, we'd already moved to LA. And then in, in 2012, it was announced that the original lineup, so the original band, were reforming and they were going yeah. to do a tour. Do you remember finding out about that and how you Yeah, found- yeah. I remember having a conversation with Paul and said, like, the Mondays are back together. Oh. I remember Paul doing his usual thing with me where he'd be like, yeah, I've got your tickets. And I'd be phoning him like two days before, where am I going to meet you? And he just blanked me completely because we know what he's like around a phone. And then literally like half an hour before the show had started, he'd say, come round to the side gate, I'll let you in. So yeah, they got back together. And then I think for the next four or five years, every time they came over, that would be the only time I'd meet up with Paul. But we'd speak periodically on the phone. But very significantly, you were with Paul on a certain day in December 2012 when he got a phone call from me telling him that the doctor had said that Chico had cancer. Do you remember that? Tell me about that day. Oh, I remember they were playing at the Roundhouse in Camden, which is one of my favourite venues. And uh, I was really, really looking forward to the gig and meeting up with Paul and we'd said that we was going to grab some food before the gig usual thing come up to the hotel meet me and we'll go out and get some food and then you can come and see sound check I remember being in the room of this hotel with him and he he told me that Chico hadn't been very well and he was expecting a call from you and I remember being in the hotel room with him and you call in and him getting the news that Chico had cancer. And I think at the time, Millie, my daughter would have been about one or two years old. And I was just, I couldn't get my head round. He came off the phone, he was in shock. And I was like, you're supposed to be on stage in like two hours time. And you've just received this news. Do you not want to just go home? And, and he was like, I don't know what to do. And it was the most awful gig I'd ever been to because he obviously played that night. And um, I remember being at the front, watching him, thinking, what is going through his mind right now? How did he take the news? What did he do? He was was not good. He was crying. We cuddled. We had a hug. I remember that. 
he um yeah he was devastated like you would and then the, the next year did, did you see much of him during the next year when chico was in treatment because i know he was going back to england he stayed in touch quite a lot and obviously he was keeping me updated on his treatment and everything i can't remember if he played any more time if he came over to play in that time it was just it was heartbreaking honestly hand on my heart you're two of the loveliest people i've ever met in my life and to, to know that you was going through that with your child was just, I couldn't get my head around it. I couldn't understand how you functioned and how you kind of just blows my mind still to this day. Yeah, you just do it because there's no choice. <laughs> like, you don't know what you can do until you have to do it. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I just wanted to get him on a plane back to you. I was like, Paul, just go now. I think he was coming back like two days later or something. I, I think he, he already got a flight booked, I think, on Christmas Eve. And he was coming back with, with Pat, who was my, our childminder's husband. The child, Our childminder, Betty, had passed away the previous year and her husband had spent Christmas by her graveside the previous Christmas. So I said to him, come and have a family Christmas with us, come to LA. And he was flying back with Paul on Christmas Eve and he flew back in to Chico having cancer and like it not being that family Christmas that we were hoping for, yeah. But actually he was kind of a godsend because he kind of kept the mood a bit light and bright, you know, he was kind of quite a a good presence at that point. But yeah, that was heavy juicy, it was. Funny those moments, like I say, the moment you found out that you was pregnant with Sonny uh, and the moment you found out Chico and son. Away from, I keep away from you, wouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So how did you feel when you found out that the Mondays were reforming? Were you worried for Paul? Did you think he would be able to handle it? Were you worried he'd relapse? Like, what? Where was your head about that? No, because at the time I remember him having a strong recovery and he was taking it seriously. He was doing his meetings in LA and he seemed to have had a, a grasp on things. And then I met him at the Brixton Academy gig, which I think was the first time that I saw them when they got back together. And I was actually not sure whether he was still using or not at the time, because I thought he was still a bit... Because Paul had this terrible anxiety around playing live and playing gigs mm. i always used to say look i'll meet up with you after not before because before you won't even talk to me because you'll be yeah. you're going to be sick and yeah. used to get really anxious before playing so i remember meeting him before the, the gig and thinking i'm not sure whether he's using but looking back now i think he was probably just anxious and really wound up because he was probably oh. using i would put money on that if you thought he was using he would have been using yeah yeah Whereas certainly in the last few years when I saw Paul, I knew he was clean. I just mm. felt it in my heart. But I think back then, maybe he was still struggling. I don't know. He didn't admit to me, which he usually would do. Oh, okay. So, All right. Maybe he wasn't then. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. And maybe it was just some old fears that I had. But I know that he used to get really nervous before a gig. So I think I just... One thing that. that he did used to do, he used to abuse his prescription meds. 
So yes. maybe he just had one or two too many of his, too many. his medications, yeah. actually. That could have been it. And I think there was another time rolling on maybe five, four or five years ago, again at the Roundhouse. And I think it was the first or the second time that I took my daughter, Amelie, along to see him. We went backstage before the gig and Paul was so ill and he said he had a cold and usual stuff. And I was like, no, he's using again. And I was like, mm. and that whole show, I was looking at him thinking, yeah, you don't look very well. And I was worried, but it's mm. all blind. He was clean at the time and he'd never, I don't, I mean, I've, I knew Paul through those dark times. I, so like he knew he could be honest with me about whether he was using or not. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Roll the clock on. You know where I used to live in Ware, seeing this this poster with like the Happy Mondays are playing at this festival in Ware, where if which is it's just a small little town. I was like, so I texted him and said, no way, you're playing where I'm. And he was like, yeah, you're going to come down with Millie. And I said, yeah. And we went down and it was the best I'd ever seen him. And that and the last time I saw Paul. And I knew he was clean then. I genuinely knew he was clean. Not long after the fire. So we went to watch that gig, some little festival thing. And he was really good. And we'd made plans to the next year. So this would be 2020. I was going to come out and go and see him, go and stay with him. He had the Wembley gig coming up. So we went to the Wembley gig. This was the last time that I saw Paul. And what was beautiful about that is that he remembered that it was Amelie's birthday, my daughter's birthday. And he got her a card and he put 50 quid in there. And when we met up with him, he gave her the card. And I thought, that fuckers don't even know when my birthday is. (laughs) <laughs> but he remembered it. So I had a little bit of a resentment in there, but he was just, and I didn't know that was the last time I was going to see him because we'd actually got, we was planning to meet him the weekend before he passed away at Alexandra Palace. We was going down to see him there and that's when I was texting him because it all came through via social media that all had died. That's the way I found out. It was the most heartbreaking it was awful. And then I think we spoke, me and you spoke that evening. And when I finally spoke to you, that's when I kind of accepted that he passed away. And um, yeah. And even, even now, I am, um, there's a part of me that thinks that he's still, he's still around. The impact he had on my life along with yourself, Ange, is something that I it changed everything. It was a game changer. Just, just you two were so down to earth and so not rock and roll and so not showbiz, but just decent, honest, just lovely, lovely people to spend time with. I've only, I look back now and I know there was lots of heartache and stress and trauma, but I can look back and honestly say that it was a fantastic time in my life. And I miss him dearly every day. There's not a day goes by, I don't think about him. I still can't listen to their music. I don't think I'd ever go to a Monday's gig again. Yeah, that'd be tough, a bit tricky. I was I was a bit resentful that they was playing so soon after he passed. You know, Sean, on the day Paul died, Sean had lined up another bass player for the gig that night. And it was the rest of the band that were like, fuck off, no chance. 
Sean was willing to play the night that Paul died. For me, Paul was the Mondays. It was like my only access to the Mondays was via Paul, and I'm not really... I've got a little bit of a friendship with Rowetta. We speak periodically. It was strange because... I remember seeing him at the funeral and I'm not going to say that I know what it's like to lose a brother, but I'm sure he was genuinely upset. But again, I've never really connected with Sean on any level. I know the stuff that Paul spoke to me about. and So you didn't speak to him at the funeral? That whole day was a bit of a blur for me because you'd asked me to speak at the funeral and at the last minute I just absolutely bottled it. It's completely understandable. I I couldn't have done it. I didn't even attempt to say I would. I remember that week before the funeral, and I was trying to write stuff out and trying to because it's almost like there's two pools. There's the pool that was in the Mondays, and then there's the pool that I knew. Do you know what I mean? And so I honestly thought that speaking in front of Ian Brown and all those people, I just lost. I couldn't get it together to do it and I'm kind of glad I made that decision in you're not the only one by the way a lot of other people were asked and what didn't feel able to do it either so it's not just you what I must say is that remember Paul what's his name the actor who played him in 24 hours I remember having a conversation outside with him after the funeral we spoke for about two hours actually we was just roasting one another and I really loved what he had to say at Paul's funeral I thought it was the most poignant of speeches and then I regretted not saying anything but I the opportunity to do this with you tonight and talk through and go through these memories is just been it's been lovely really are there any other funny stories that we've passed over was it was anything else that was on your list of things to when he was staying with me and Dawn at the mission room, the chapel, I never forget it because him and Tom had been doing some intensive step work up at my house and they were out in the garden doing a step four, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I always remember going up and I put one of Dawn's dresses on. I dressed up in one of Dawn's little black dresses and I come down and I just started cooking in the kitchen with her high heels on and this dress on. <laughs> and Paul was outside. And again, it was one of those, he was laughing so much. I mean, that's the thing. He had a great, we had, we shared a really dark sense of humour, to be honest with you. And it was, yeah, it was, it's hard pulling these memories out of everything that went on but there were so many times I thought I remember being in France like for instance you again you must have been away for the weekend and you always used to say to me make sure you look after him I used to think why the fuck is she like what kind of responsibility is that (laughs) to look after Paul and we woke up one morning and Paul had gone he was he disappeared and I said to Mark and John, where the fuck is he? The Jeep's not here, that Cherokee Jeep thing you had. Where the fuck is he? So me and Mark got in the van and we're driving up the road. And I always remember going through Groncourt, the little village. And as we got out of the village, we see a couple of skid marks in the road. And then about a mile later, there was a broken indicator on the road. 
And then about half a mile later, there was some more glass and everything. And then we came to this bend and your Jeep was just in a field on its side. And I was like, oh, my God, he's killed himself. Yeah. So me and Mark have run over to the Jeep trying to look for him. He's not in the Jeep at all. So we get back in the van and carry on driving. We get to the next village and there's one of those funny little farmer's bars where all the farmers go first thing in the morning. Yeah. Just sat out there with these farmers just drinking. And I was like, Paul, what the? <laughs> and he's like, oh, don't worry about the car. it will be all right. How are you going to explain this one to Ange? <laughs> I was always caught in the middle between trying to please you and trying to please him, I felt. It was strange. I felt like you relied on me to keep him clean and sober. Okay. I was never sure whether you knew that I was clean and sober or not when we was in France because I was struggling. I remember one night, me and Paul had been up to that little pub in the village and yeah. I ended up in a car with a barmaid and she took me to wherever it was on the coast and plied me with some more drink. And then she drove me back and I got back to the house about four in the morning and you being you working up until late, you was in the kitchen working on your computer. And I remember seeing you and I'd ended up in the sea swimming. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I was soaking wet. And I saw you in the kitchen and thought, I couldn't get into the house without getting past you. So I'm going to have to go and sleep in the, uh, on the bench. <laughs> I was freezing cold. because I, I was told about that one. <laughs> That's it. There are no more secrets. We ended up going to Paris one night at school. But I was never aware that you knew about any of this stuff. I always thought you thought Jay was like Mr. Recovery. No, yeah. I knew like soonish after not at the time but soon afterwards and I always felt really really guilty about that and thought I've got an amends somewhere along the line to make to Ange about this and here we are talking about it now when did you get clean so I finally got clean about 2011 oh wow so long time though a while after me and Dawn split up and I was struggling obviously then then I got back into recovery, uh, yeah, 2011. Yeah. But never say never, but to go back to that place, it feels a bit inconceivable now, really. Yeah. yeah. Did, did I tell you about our celebrity funeral discussions? So we we would, morbid as we were, we'd often speak about, if I die, will you come to my funeral? If you die first, will I come to your funeral? And I was like, yeah, of course I'll come to your funeral. I was like, would you come to mine? He went, nah, nah, couldn't be asked. I was <laughs> like, oh, that's great. And then we'd speak about what songs we'd have played at our funeral. And he'd said to me that without question, it would be Ceremony by New Order, which we both thought was a poignant and great choice. And then it was Starman. And he also said that he'd like Echo and the Bunnymen. And I was like, no way, because I never had pulled down for a fan of Echo and the Bunnymen. And of course, Ian got to sing the song at Paul's funeral, which the music that day, just like I said, walking into the church and ceremony was playing. I just took me back to that day when we was on that patio thinking, I never thought this would happen. And here we are. Yeah. Um, well, I remember and- when, 
on the day of the funeral, I remember thinking it was going to be really hard seeing Sonny and Chico carrying the coffin. And we got down and they picked the coffin up and we were walking along into the church. I thought, oh, I can do this. This is okay. Right. I can do this. And then I heard ceremony start. And I was like, oh. (laughs) And I think that day as well, seeing the boys broke me. I remember speaking to Sonny and he was stood after the funeral. We was back at the hotel and he'd made that beautiful collage of pictures and everything. Oh, yeah. Stood by there. And I hadn't seen Sonny since he was so high. And I said to him, Oh my God, Sonny, I knew you're dead. And he went, No, I know who you are. (laughs) He went, And he just looked lost. And I just, ah, heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. That's all we've got for you this week. We're going to be playing out in a moment with the track Welcome from the album Radiator by Paul Ryder's Big Arm. It's out now, so grab yourself a copy. Please give this podcast a nice review and rating and subscribe so that you don't miss out on any new episodes. Got loads more coming up. If you'd like to watch the video version of this episode, it is available on YouTube from next Sunday at 8pm UK time, where I will be live in the chat yes on new year's eve so do join us please support us by joining our patrons club by going to patreon.com forward slash the paul rider tapes go to the website which is paulrider.tv and check out the shop and bag yourself some big arm our paul rider merch and come and join us in the chat on all of our social media pages big big love to all of you have a really brilliant christmas week or whenever whenever you're listening to this and thank you so much for being here. Big love and thanks to Jason Godwin for being such an open and candid guest. And as always, of course, big thanks and love go to the star of the show, himself, the one and the only, the late, great Paul Anthony Big Arm Ryder. 
Happy Christmas, everyone, especially to those of you who might be missing someone this year. Big love and see you next week. Productions. <laughs> <laughs>